My name is Andrew Conrad, and uh, I'm the senior pastor here, so if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, whether you are here in person or visiting on live stream, I look forward to, to doing that. Um, we are in the middle of a sermon series on the seven churches. Um, big game this week, right? Champions League, round of 16. That's not the big game. So there's, there's Eagles fans. So who's going to win tonight? Who's Eagles fans? Give me a cheer. That's pretty lame. Chiefs fans. Uh, <laughs> all right, so there's a little rivalry there. I don't know. You know, Philly's a point to a point and a half favorite where you look on the odds. Um, so I don't know what that means, but apparently Philly might, might, might win the big game. You never know. Um, but if they do win, I have lots of questions. If Philly wins, I have questions. Like, when will the victory parade be? Um, they're all going to get rings, of course, right? But who is going to get the key to the city? And will, will, um, will any of them become like pillars in the community and get statues made like has been done before? Will any of them get a statue on the steps next to Rocky? That's what I want to know. Will the Philly faithful get their, the name Jalen Hurts tattooed on their bodies? Probably. <laughs> when the Apostle John prophesied about Philly's victory, he wasn't talking about football. It's in Revelation 3. It's a different Philly, different game. Let's take a look at what he has to say. Revelation 3, chapter 7, verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Here's the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of the trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which, come down, which comes down from my God out of heaven. My own and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Spirit of God, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word and help us to understand it today. Not only just to understand its context and the history and what's in it, but to be able to apply it to our lives. And so will you use it to encourage us, to shape us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ, it says, is the Holy One, the Holy One, the one who is true, the one who is faithful. He is the one who is in the line of David, the Messiah that is to come, the one who rose from the dead and who reigns over his kingdom in heaven. He is the one who holds the keys to the kingdom, holds the keys over death, the keys to eternal life. He is the faithful and true one. And what John is doing is giving us this picture because Christ is faithful and true, then you and I must remain faithful to Christ. 
And we'll talk about that in three ways today. The first point is this, that we should remain faithful to Christ with focus on his mission. We should remain faithful to Christ with focus on his mission. What we just read, we saw this language in in verse 8 of open doors. And what he is saying is that Jesus has given you open doors. He's opened the doors, and you have been faithful to walk through those doors. You've been faithful in that. You have not denied the name of Jesus, but you have proclaimed it. They share the gospel. They make new followers of Jesus. After Paul and Barnabas complete their missionary journey, they return to Antioch, and Acts 14 gives us this, uh, this language, the same language of open doors in verse 27. They report to the church uh, on arriving there in Antioch. They gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. The open doors there. What's interesting to me about this, this language of open doors, is that we use this language in our culture today, and especially in Christian culture, we use this language of, you know, God opening doors in this phrase, when God closes one door, he opens another. And we usually say that in reference to a job change, a college that maybe we wanted to get into but didn't, or a sport, or some other event in life, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And while in principle that's true, that's not how the New Testament is using that metaphor of the open door. It almost always uses that language of the open door to refer to the mission of making disciples. That God has opened a door for you to be about his mission. On his mission. And I would like for us to recapture that metaphor, to be using it primarily in that way, even though it applies to the other ways too. At Spring Run, we want to focus on our mission of making growing followers who influence others with the gospel. So that's what we should do, right? We should be sharing our faith, talking about that. And that's not an easy thing to do in today's culture. But it does help if we don't focus on dividing issues when we're trying to share our faith. Um, There's many dividing issues, whatever they may be, but take politics, for example, because politics seems to divide people easily, right? And if we get stuck on that, it might get hard to to share the good news of Jesus. Or maybe it's not. Maybe it's a way that we say, you know what? I don't even like our system. I like kings better. Jesus is my king. Like, what? That just throws everybody for a loop. But we should be about the mission of sharing the good news of Jesus. For us, I think that means, like, if we're going to do that, we've got to be praying about it. I, I encourage you, I've done this throughout my time as pastor here, and I just want to remind you again, encourage you to be praying for people who aren't yet, have not yet come to faith. They might be curious, they might be far from God, but, but they're not there yet. And I, and, I, and I want you to pray for those people daily, or at least weekly. Just keep a prayer card. It might be two people, it might be five, it might be 20. Just keep a prayer card and pray through that list. Because when you pray... God uses that to open doors in their hearts, in your mind, keeping it on the forefront of your mind. So pray for people. And then share your faith. Make it your goal to share your faith monthly with somebody. That doesn't mean that you're going to share their faith, your faith and they're going to get converted right away and everything's going to be happy and smiley that way. But you're just in the practice of, okay, who have I shared my faith with this month? And it may be just the first time. It may be a really simple way, or it might be a long story way, you know, but share your faith. And then get your friends, maybe your community group together to host a party at least quarterly 
for people who don't go to church. Friends and neighbors. I mean, it can be a mix of both, whatever. But just do things that are in the neighborhood that aren't just in church. Like, go out there and celebrate and have fun. Be around people. Do that at least quarterly so you're, you're, you're getting to your friends that you're praying for are on your mind and in your lives. It's easy to think about open doors this way and think, oh, good, well, that, okay, this is what I want to think about. This is what the Bible says, and so I want to think about these open doors that I should use. If God's going to open the door, that means it'll be easy. And I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't say that, and neither does the Bible. So I want to encourage you, not discourage you, but I want you to be faced with reality. Right? Another verse, 1 Corinthians 16, talks about open doors in this way. And Paul says, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me. Good, smooth sailing. And there's many who oppose me. He knows the reality of where he's going, but even though there's opposition, he's still saying there's an open door where many are listening and believing. And so that leads to our second main point, which is this, that we need to remain faithful to Christ without fear of opposition. Remain faithful to Christ without fear of opposition. In this region of Philadelphia, um, it was, it's an area known for earthquakes. The tragic news, right, this week there was an earthquake in Turkey, not in the region of Philadelphia, on the other side of Turkey, and affecting Syria. And last I heard, over 25,000 people were dead. A serious tragedy. Disaster on epic scales. In 17 AD, an earthquake struck the city of Philadelphia, causing many of the buildings there to crumble and fall, and the aftershocks rumbled on, making everybody afraid to keep living in the city. Remember, their cities were often walled, and the buildings built along the walls. And so people fled the city to the countryside to live out in the countryside in the valley surrounding there. And so people have a history in this region where John writes of Philadelphia, have a history of living in fear of natural disaster or catastrophe. It's kind of built into their DNA, like what's going to happen. And we'll come back to that in a little bit in the text. It kind of reappears again. But for now, let's just say this. I think it's wise. It's important to be wise, right, about natural disasters. Like, if there's earthquakes, take appropriate precautions, whatever you can do. Right? If there's hurricanes, take appropriate precautions, whatever it is. Be wise about it, but don't live in fear of it. We can't live in fear of it. We, we can't control it. Don't live in fear of something you can't control, whether that's disease or natural disaster. You have to be wise, but live with faith. But it's not just these earthquakes. It's evil opposition. In verse 9, which we don't need to look at right now, but you may remember we read past this, and this curious phrase came up, synagogues of Satan. Like, what? Jesus just said that the Jews who are gathering for their church in their synagogue are synagogues of Satan. What do we make of that language? What is he saying? At this time in history, the Jews here are persecuting Christians. They have gathered and assembled, not just here, but even in, in Jerusalem. It, it, well, after Jerusalem fell in 70 AD, they started meeting outside of it, and they, they made a proclamation in which they were to banish Christians, to persecute Christians. They would get the Romans to persecute Christians because the Christians were seen as atheists, that is, they didn't believe in the Roman mythological structure and the Roman gods, and so not believing that, they were atheists. And so the Jews wanted the Romans 
to persecute the Christians as a way to get ahead of the Christians in that. Interestingly, the Romans gave the Jews um, uh, exemption from that. They had already had that and enjoyed that for years. They had that freedom, but they didn't want to give it to the Christians. And so they would try to prosecute them or get them killed. And what you see here is evil forces are at work. Jesus is saying there is real spiritual evil and evil forces are at work and they can be at work even through the appearance of religious things. They may get a win. Evil forces may get a win in the season. They don't win the Super Bowl. They don't win the big game because Christ wins the big game. And he says in verse 9, he says to these, these synagogues of Satan, these liars who have denied their Messiah, Jesus, he says they will be made to bow before the faithful Christians, understanding and seeing that God has loved the Christians. This is language that's pulled straight from the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14, it says this, that the children of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion, of the Holy One of Israel. While God does have a plan for Israel and for Jewish people who believe in Jesus as the Messiah, we see that through the scriptures. He also says, look, you can be Jewish and be against Jesus, and it's like a synagogue of Satan, which is to also say you can say you're Christian and be against Jesus, and you might as well be a church of Satan. Because if you're not for Jesus, you're opposed to him. You're either with Jesus or you're with the evil one. And he's making that pretty clear. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, who was a 20th century apologist, um, and he was a pastor of a church in St. Louis where Brian and I served, though not with him. Um, we're not that old. Um, different times. Um, he tells a story of once having talked to a young man at the church, um, and the man came in, and Schaefer wanted to impress upon him the spiritual reality. So they walked into the sanctuary, they sat down at the church, and Schaefer asked him, he said, look around, what do you see in this room? And he began naming things. I see a pulpit, I see a baptismal font. Um, I see, you know, um, in Oregon, I see chandeliers. And he said, okay, what else do you see? And he continued on naming everything in the room until there was nothing left to name. And he's like, I, I've named everything I can see, like carpet. And he says, you know what I see? He says, what? I see principalities and powers. I see spiritual forces at work battling for your soul. And what he was trying to impress upon him is that the battle that we have is not simply what we can see, but what we can't see that there is this evil opposition against us, that there is spiritual oppression. And it's real. I, I want to, um, teenagers, college students, anybody else really too, but it's, it's fairly normal, maybe too normal, to be really curious about, um, how shall we say, the dark arts maybe, um, Ouija boards, um, dark spells, um, curses, um, seances, summoning spirits. It's kind of a curious thing for you to like want to see, see your friends do or participate in. I want you to hear me. Don't do it. It's real. 
The Bible warns you against it, not because it's silly or harmless, but because it is seriously dangerous. And I've seen the effects of it. I've seen the darkness that it brings. I've seen it from some people I know in our own community. I've seen it when I've seen voodoo in Haiti in the Dominican Republic. I felt the darkness in Hindu temples in Europe where sacrifices are being made and milk's being poured over an altar and you can feel a difference. It's a real thing. Don't treat it lightly. There is a spiritual opposition and it is real. There is a um, verse here, verse 10, that's interesting. And it raises a question for us. Let's put verse 10 on the screen. And the question is, can I escape persecution? Like you're telling me there's evil opposition. Maybe there's a way out. Look at verse 10. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Oh, well, wait. So because I've kept the word, then, then, then you'll keep me away from the trial is what this looks like. And... Revelation is a hard book, notoriously hard book to understand and, 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 and deal with. Some see this verse as referring to an escape, like to the rapture during the Great Tribulation, talked about later in the book of Revelation. And maybe this is saying that's what's going to happen. God's going to remove us so we don't have to face persecution and suffering. I don't think it means that in this text here in this verse. I don't think it means an escape. I think the word keeping there means a keeping, a preserving through it. I think it means that Christ will hold them and sustain them and protect them eternally so that they receive the crown. Plus, history does give us some, some testimony here. History of this very area of Philadelphia tells us that a great persecution broke out just a couple of decades after this is written. John writes this in the 90s AD, right? In 115 AD, the Roman historian Tacitus writes, these, writes describing the Christians as a, quote, class hated for their abominations, end quote, and guilty of, quote, hatred of the human race, end quote, and hence are worthy of repression. Sounds like cancel culture to me. See, there's nothing new under the sun. This is the way life goes. This is the opposition that we can face. They faced it then. We might face it now. There was a period of peace that happened, though, in Asia Minor, the area of these seven churches, uh, for about 50 years until Marcus Aurelius came to power in, in the 160s AD. You may remember Marcus Aurelius uh, as the Roman emperor and, and the movie Gladiator. Um, if you watch that at all, uh, you know, 100 years ago when that came out, not that long ago, but makes me feel old. Um, a persecution broke out in this area. Christians were fed to animals in the arena. Again, think gladiator in those arena battles. The apostle John discipled a man who becomes a Christian. He disciples him. The man's name is Polycarp. Polycarp uh, excels in growing for Christ, walking through open doors, leading the church after the apostles, the next generation, so that the apostle John installs him as the bishop of a city called Smyrna, which is one of the churches in Revelation that we've already covered. And it's about 60 miles from Philadelphia along the trade route, closer to the Aegean Sea. Polycarp, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, long after John had died, 
was standing for what was true and proclaiming the gospel. A mob, an angry mob, got tired of him and demanded his arrest, went and arrested him, gathered him, and brought him before the proconsul, the Roman proconsul there, for trial. And the Roman proconsul, in the theater with all the people gathered around, again, think gladiator, but not in Rome, pleads with Polycarp because he's old now, quite old, probably in his 90s, near 100 years old. And the proconsul begs him with these words, swear by the genius of Caesar, and I will release you. Curse Christ. Polycarp looks up, and he sees the surrounding heathen crowds chanting and cheering. And he replies, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who saved me? He was condemned to die and burned alive in the theater. This is the persecution that has broken out through centuries in different times and places against Christians. We're not guaranteed any escape of that. In fact, Jesus in John 17, talking to his disciples as he's praying for them in his high priestly prayer, says that he's going to pray for them. My prayer, he says, is not that you, Lord, that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. You see what he's saying here is, if you are going to be a Christian, you will likely face opposition. And what Jesus is praying for you is that you will be protected. That is, that you will be kept. That in the hour of trial, you will be preserved and protected and your faith kept. The evil one doesn't win. There may be hardship and may be opposition, but the evil one doesn't win. People, it is a temptation to put Christ in the closet, to deny Christ before the watching world so that you gain popularity and you're not facing opposition. But don't deny Christ. The church here is praised for holding fast to the faith, going through those open doors. And because they hold fast, Christ says, I will keep you and hold fast with you. The third point then is to remain faithful to Christ with future rewards in heaven. And I want you to notice the language that we see in verse 12 here. Put verse 12 on the screen and, and notice all these things that are promised. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Okay, the temple of my God is the place that God dwells. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. Right? So there's these three things that he's using here in this text. He does this in each of the, to each of the churches, gives them this, this symbol of this reward that is to come in heaven. And here it's to be, one of them is to be the pillar in the temple of my God. This again probably reminds them and plays off of the image of the earthquakes that they had endured in that city. Right? And when the earthquake happens and you have to flee because of rioting and looting and, and very life and trying not to die... What he's saying here is in the temple of my God, you will be pillars that won't be shaken. It won't collapse. You will never have to leave it like you've had to do in your own city. No, in this city you won't have to leave. You will be pillars in it. And pillars in the temples are not literal pillars, but they are representative of those who are strong in Christ, those who are faithful. And so when God judges the world, when he shakes the world, the thing that will not be shaken is those who are in Christ. They will be 
pillars and strong and stand and remain in heaven. And then he talks about the name that they are going to have imprinted on them. The name that is imprinted on them is the name of the victor that they have proudly carried even in the face of opposition. And now they are going to carry it into victory and have his name on them. And then the new city that he's going to give them, the new Jerusalem. This harkens back to their history as well because when that earthquake happened in 17 AD, which is long before this is written, but it's, mem it's uh, remembered in the history of the city of Philadelphia, the emperor at that time was Tiberius. Emperor Tiberius gave financial aid to Philadelphia to help rebuild them and restore them. They didn't have to pay taxes and things like that for a while. And he changed the name of the city to Neo Caesarea, the new Caesar. And that name stuck for about 50 years. It was the new Caesar. And then it kind of reverted back to Philadelphia after some time. And Jesus is saying he holds the keys to the new city the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. Notice what Jesus is doing here, even in his language in, in Revelation that he's given. He is contextualizing the gospel. He's not changing the gospel message. He is making it understandable to their very experience and language. The things in their city that they would hope for, but yet were afraid because they weren't happening, pale in comparison to what Jesus is saying, I can offer you. I can offer you that so much more. So much better than the greatest hopes you have for your own city. My promises are better than that. They're bigger than that. And so he holds out what they long for and says, this is what you really need. You want the key to the city? Jesus is saying, I hold the keys. But you can get in if you know me. The door is open to you. Will you come? Will you, he'll stand at the door and knock. Will, will you come in? When by his grace you have run the race, when you have fought the good fight and carried his name, he'll throw a parade for you. The doors are going to be open. Come on in. Welcome. There's a feast. There's a celebration. And your jersey won't say eagles or chiefs, if should they happen to win. It'll say Jesus, King of kings, Savior of sinners, the one who is faithful and true. Because what he promises and what he offers is so much better and it's for keeps, it's forever. I don't know who's going to win tonight. I do know this, I know Christ wins. And it's for good, and it's forever. Christ is faithful and true. And he empowers you and I, by his spirit, to follow him, to remain faithful. Louise Robinson Chapman lived from 1892 to 1993. She was a missionary in Africa from 1920 to 1940. And while there, she gave a, a note that was on a piece of paper, a confession of faith, if you will. She passed it on to another woman named Nina Gunter who published it. The words of this confession were found in the study of a martyred Zimbabwean pastor. He wrote this. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit's power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I'm no longer, I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, 
position, promotion, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean in his presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer, and I labor with power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my guide reliable. My mission clear, I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifices, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes. Give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops. And when he comes for his own, he'll have no problems recognizing me. My banner will be clear. And he was killed. I'm not here to tell you that you're going to be killed. I am here to tell you you're all going to die one day and you're going to stand before Jesus. And he is the faithful and true one. Do you know him? And will you remain faithful to him? Remain faithful to Christ with focus on his mission without fear of opposition and with future rewards in heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be faithful because it is not something that we can do in our own strength or in our own power. We are weak, we, are, we stumble, we falter, but Lord, help us not to turn back. Help us to keep coming to you, running into your arms, receiving your grace and your mercy, reminding us of what we are to do. Will you empower us to carry out your mission of making growing followers of Jesus, making more followers of you? Will you open doors and go before us and work on people's hearts that we would see people come to faith? And Lord, will you give us eyes for the future, for the rewards in heaven, eyes for that future city of Zion, the place where there is no more weeping or sorrow or shame, or the place where there is great celebration, great parades, pillars, new names. Lord, keep us, hold us, sustain us, we pray in your name. Amen.